I'll give my standard disclaimer. If you spend much time with me at all, you'll hear me say, that's me. <laughs> and, and, and if I understand right down that, that doesn't matter at all. Right. Because it's your channel. Yeah, that's my channel. It just jolts you. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay, no worries. No worries. Hello, my friends. Brian here. Today, I'm going to explore five questions on the topic of authenticity. And I want to thank my friend and client, Juliana, who's in my Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching Program, for asking these five questions. Number one, if you remove a habit or a belief, do you have to replace that habit or belief with something else? If yes, how do you know what to replace it with? Well, first of all, I like this view that our beliefs are like books in a library, that they're all arranged. Now, they're probably not as neat and orderly as books in a library typically are. In fact, I'm constantly amazed by how many contradictory beliefs we hold as human beings, many of which, maybe most of which we're unaware of. So this metaphor of if our beliefs are like books in a library, that you actually can take one off the shelf, you can remove it, you could throw it away or burn it, you could put something else in its place, or you could leave a hole there in your belief, perhaps. Now, every belief ultimately either serves you, or it doesn't serve you, or maybe it's neutral. But this idea that you could swap a belief like this relationship isn't working to This relationship is a gift because even though I don't get what I want, it's helping me become more self-aware. Now, that's a clunky belief maybe, but that's the kind of example that you could say with a former friend, a family member, somebody you're married to. You could walk around believing absolutely and find plenty of evidence for why it's not working. But is that belief really serving you? What might serve you more? If you remove a habit or a belief Do you have to replace that habit or belief with something else? No, you don't have to. But what I hear in that question is this idea of choice. And so that's kind of a meta answer to this question is you always have choice. I'm constantly amazed at how invisible our lack of choice is when you hear yourself or someone else saying, I have to, I should, I must, I've got to, these kinds of things. What that points to is a sense of powerlessness, a lack of awareness of the choice that we always have. So with this question, the second part of this question, if yes, how do you know what to replace it with? Well, my rule of thumb is to replace any belief that doesn't empower you with an empowering belief. Now, what might that look like? Well, I think that situation specific, but if it's in your finances, saying things like, I'm not good with money, I'm not a numbers person, this is confusing, this is too hard, replacing that belief consciously with something like, I can do this, this matters to me, this will help me be a better parent, this will help me serve more people, you can find any number of reasons or beliefs for anything. And I often liken this to something you might find on the web. I ask people that I work with, could you find evidence for anything, no matter how silly or crazy it might sound, could you find evidence for we didn't really land on the moon, vaccines don't really work, JFK was murdered by the CIA, you know, on and on. You can find evidence to support anything. Now, what's the truth of any of those? I don't know. But I learned long ago that what mattered more to me 
then whether or not what I believed was true is whether or not what I believe empowers me to be the person I want to be, to live the life that I'm committed to living, to make the contribution I want to make. Now, if you'd said that to me 20 years ago, what you believe, what matters less than whether what you believe is true is whether or not what you believe empowers you. I would have thought, man, you're an idiot. But now what I think about is how do you know anything is true? Yes, you can hear it from somebody that you respect or trust. You can do your own research and observation. But what I invite you to to ask is, have you ever been wrong before? Have your powers of observation ever deceived you before? And if you look at the history of science and human discovery, it's the history of being wrong. And when you look at the history of human progress, it really began when we had the humility or the wisdom or the willingness to acknowledge that we didn't know certain things. I think of this example of maps, maps that were drawn by cartographers in Europe for years beyond the borders of the known shores. What was drawn were sea serpents and things like here be dragons. And as we ventured into those spaces, we learned that that wasn't necessarily what was there, or if that was what If that was what was there, they did a fantastic job of hiding. So, okay, what was that about? That was about this idea. Again, the answer to this question, how do you know what to replace a disempowering belief with? My invitation to you is to replace a disempowering belief with an empowering belief. Okay, number two. If what you think may not be truth, how does one discover truth? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm answering this question. How does one discover truth? Subsequent questions and Juliana's stacking questions here. Can truth be different for each person? Does that mean that there is not right or wrong, good or bad? Man, these are some of life's biggest questions, aren't they? Well, let me start by taking this first part. If what you think may not be truth, how does one discover truth? What I look at with this is experience is truth. What your moment to moment experience of life is, there's truth in your experience. Now, there might not be truth in the beliefs that create your experience. And that's a nuance, but it's an important nuance. How do you know what's true? Well, again, your senses, your five senses, plus your intellect, if you count that, your intuition is a sixth sense. These can be wrong. As we know, I think about something that I've experienced, which is if you touch yourself with a piece of cold metal, or if somebody touches you and you don't know it's coming, like maybe somebody touches you on the back of the neck with a piece of cold metal, it will feel wet because the skin's sensors register pressure and temperature, but they don't register moisture per se. And that's a pretty nuanced thing to know that what occurs for you as wetness is actually merely pressure and temperature. Why does that matter? Well, it matters in the same way that if you realize that your physical senses have limitations, we know that the eyes can only see a portion of light. We can only see visible light. We don't see infrared. We don't see gamma rays, x-rays. We know that our ears don't hear what a dog hears. Our ears hear something like 20 cycles to 20,000 cycles. 
We know there are other animals that hear beyond what the human ear can hear. So there are things that are occurring that we're not aware of yet. Very often we live as though what our senses are, our perception is, is truth. And if you have the, again, the wisdom or the humility to recognize that what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're touching is certainly not the limits of reality. And beyond that, the interpretations that you make of that, the meaning that you ascribe to the senses that you're taking in, limited as they are, that there is a truth in the experience of all of that. There is some experience. Now, whether it's representative of reality, whatever that is, truth, whatever that is, is I think is another matter. So how does one discover truth? I think a great starting point is by acknowledging the truth of your experience while recognizing that the inputs of your experience might be misleading you in some way, or at least incomplete. Beyond that, that's one of life's big questions, isn't it? I realize that I want to be omniscient. And the first time I heard myself say that in response to someone who asked what I want for my future, I felt a little silly. What does it mean to be omniscient? To know everything. Well, I've spent a lot of my time reading books in classrooms, surrounding myself with people from whom I can learn. And it wasn't until the last couple of years that I've come to believe that ultimately even knowledge has a limited usefulness because to simply know a lot of things doesn't necessarily deepen our experience of life. It, it, it can expand our awareness in some ways, but in our moment to moment lived experience, even knowledge isn't useful for expanding our awareness. So part of this, how can we know truth? I think if we're to know truth, it will come because we find ways to expand our awareness and deepen our experience in whatever that means to you. One of my teachers suggested that we can learn more from our own intuition, our own inner light than we ever could from a lifetime of books and classrooms and teachers who are attempting to transmit wisdom or knowledge verbally or in traditional manners. So how will you know what's true? Again, that's one I'm still figuring out as well. But if there is a truth to be found, I think that you will find it inside yourself. Can truth be different for each person? Interesting. We all have different experiences of life. Therefore, at some level, yes, there's a different truth occurring. Does that mean there's no right or wrong, good or bad? You know, on that point, what comes to mind is just this idea that it's very easy, if you're willing, to see that what has been culturally acceptable different places and different times has changed dramatically, including infanticide, the killing of children. In my reading, not my personal experience, but in my, in my learning that there have been tribes, and I believe some still exist today, where it was okay to to kill a child because it would benefit the overall group. Now, that's an extreme example. More recent examples from American history. If you look at what has been culturally permissible for people to, to do when it comes to people of a different race or a different belief system, I won't go too deep into that, but to say that cultural mores and norms definitely seem to have a lot to do with a specific place and time where one lives. So does that mean there's not right or wrong, good or bad? Again, that's a deep philosophical question that I don't have the answer to, but I think a lot of what we call good or bad is ultimately our social conditioning. And again, if you live as though you are the authority on your own life, yes, it's one thing to look to those who have gone before you, to look at those who are in positions of authority, 
But again, I think if you look at yourself as the authority and the leader of your life, especially uh, when you recognize that you are the creator of your experience and you're willing to take responsibility for that, that's a different life. Okay, man, this is deep. I feel like this is like, like a deep conversation. I don't know that this is light listening, but I hope it's useful. I hope it's interesting. I do, I do want to say this as well. Part of the conversation that led to the questions that Juliana is asking here now was sparked by this idea of becoming more of who you really are and less of who you're really not. What does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to feel comfortable in your own skin and how can we do it? One of the questions that I like to ask people that I work with when I coach is who's the most authentic person you know and what about them makes you think they're authentic? And if you think about it, if you answer that question for yourself, one of the things that often comes up or is maybe likely true for you here as well is that these people are often charismatic. People will say they don't care what other people think. They're true to themselves. They do what they want, that kind of thing. I was just thinking of the work of Bronnie Ware, and I, and I guess I will share this here, that Bronnie Ware wrote this blog post that became a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying or The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And the number one regret is she worked with people near the end of their life, hundreds and hundreds of people over a period of years that she saw commonalities. And the number one thing that she would hear people say while they're literally on their deathbed is, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life others expected of me. And I did a little Googling before I began recording this. And what I see is that every day, about 360,000 people are born. About 152,000 people die every day. There's about two people every second. That means there are about 208,000 people that make their way to this planet, like net births and deaths every single day, 76 million people a year end up on planet earth. Now, eventually every one of them is going to leave this planet just like you. Maybe some of them will leave for Mars if Elon Musk has his way, but we're all going to die. I say that to my kids. Sometimes, you know, 100% of people who eat broccoli die. (laughs) That doesn't help with their eating broccoli, but we're all leaving. And knowing that, and knowing that So many people leave this life confused, frustrated, disappointed, upset, angry, you know, full of remorse, these kinds of things. And what I submit to you is that if you haven't thought of it already, that in some ways that's a choice, because if you haven't consciously made the choice that that won't be you, then you've made the choice that at least it might be you. So this idea of living an authentic life and consciously living true to who you are, being more of who you really are with each day and less of who you're really not, that that's what it means, or at least one view of what it means to live an authentic life. And it's certainly within your power. Number three, how does one recognize the wrong beliefs and where the mind first created the story? How do you remove that roadmap that your mind has created for that belief? Well, I don't think there are such thing as wrong beliefs, or perhaps they're all wrong. That might be a more useful way of saying it. Someone that I've learned from once said, never believe any thought you think about yourself that limits you in any way. What? I read that like nine times before I even started to understand what that means. Someone else suggested to me, if you can think it, it's not true. 
someone else that I admire, Werner Earhart, said the truth believed is a lie. Like, whoa, what, what does this mean? What is this pointing to? I think ultimately this is kind of the Zen belief of the finger pointing to the moon. That very often we'll look at something, we'll look at a teaching, we'll look at a word, and that's the finger. It's pointing at something. It's trying to get us to see or understand maybe a deeper truth or reality, but instead of seeing what it's actually pointing to, we get fixated on the message or the approach, and we, we don't actually get the truth of what's there if we're only believing in the finger. <laughs> and so how does one recognize wrong beliefs and where the mind first created the story? Well, I don't know that that's all that important to understand. Understanding has a limited usefulness. What I think is more useful is what is the story or the belief that would empower you, again, to live the life you want to live, to be the person you want to be? How do you remove that roadmap that your mind has created for that belief? I don't know that you need to worry about it. I love what Tony Robbins says about faith and fear. The difference between faith and fear is that fear is the imagination undirected and faith is the imagination directed. You know, focusing on where you want to go, telling the story again, that empowers you. If a story or a belief causes you suffering, if it keeps you stuck, if it makes you feel small, if it holds you back from making the contribution that you believe you're capable of making, those are what one might call wrong beliefs. Now, I don't think they're wrong. I just think they don't serve you. Okay, number four, can you be authentic and still not like all the parts of your life that you see? That's a great question. I think that if you look at yourself without judgment, there are still things you won't like. And I think, again, that's a nuance that there's a difference between judging something and liking something or not liking something. Whoa. (laughs) So can you be authentic and still not like all the parts of your life that you see? I think so. Again, there's a lot of things about myself. There's a lot of things about life that I don't like. There's a lot of things I like. There's a lot of things I judge. There's a lot of things I don't. I try, you know, I'm aware of my judgment. So I guess that's the simple answer to this question. Like the last two thirds of this, I don't know we're useful, but let me, let me offer this. There's a difference between thinking and awareness. And you can be aware of a thought without thinking about that thought. Thinking often is an involuntary process. Something that just arises spontaneous to a stimulation, stimuli. And I believe if you consciously cultivate greater levels of awareness of when you are thinking, when you are judging, when you are assessing, when you are analyzing, when you are evaluating, when you become aware that those processes, that's if you have a master's degree or PhD, there are processes (laughs) if they're multiple, but when you become aware that those things are happening, Then you start to live in the space between those, or at least you have the choice, the ability to do that. I, you know, there's many people that I, there's many people that don't realize there's a little narrator going on all the time, at least all the time that they're awake. I remember being in a training one time where there was a woman who audibly gasped, an adult woman who audibly uh, gasped upon discovering this tiny narrator 
<laughs> going on now. I don't know when I first realized that for myself. I'm not sure if you do. I think that in and of itself is an interesting question. If you ask people, when did you first realize there seems to be a little person who's giving a play-by-play as you go throughout each moment of your life? And you know, for my wife, it was when she read A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, a book that has changed many people's lives. If you read The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, he talks about having that realization as a teenager and how it changed the entire course of his life. So why am I talking about this now in a conversation about authenticity? It's because there's this invitation to look at the parts of yourself, being aware of when you're judging them, and then as best you can, observing them for what they are. Rocks are hard. Water is wet. People are what they are, and they're not what they're not. And that includes you. So can you be authentic and still not like all the parts of yourself? I think so. Okay. Uh, Number five, final question, how to be patient enough with myself to slow down and really see and accept me for myself without judgment. Oh, look at that. It followed, (laughs) it followed perfectly from that. Well, I think what's useful before answering this question exactly is asking, what do you want? Life's operative question is what do you want? Do you want to really see and accept yourself without judgment? Because if you don't want it, why bother? Why ask the question? Why try? Maybe you think that's something you should want. Maybe there's something else you want instead. So if you've done that bit of self-reflection and asked, do you want to be? I don't even want to say, do you want to be patient enough with yourself to slow down and really see and accept yourself for yourself without judgment? But I suspect there's something in there that you want and it's available to you. And if we maybe shorten that down a little bit and say, what is it that you really want? You give that answer. Then how do you do that? Well, how do you do that? How I would do that is a little different. Perhaps I will tell you how I've gone about it for what it's worth since you're not here to have that part of the conversation with in the sound booth with me. For me, meditation has been a huge, huge, I would say an aid, a resource, a tool in this. I have meditated every day for about the last eight years. In the last three years, every single day, it's been every morning, every night. For me, I'm at a point where I don't miss. It doesn't matter if I'm sick, if I'm traveling, how early I must wake to fit 21 minutes of meditation into my morning. Part of why my commitment is unwavering is that I remember what my life was like before I meditated. And I assure you, I don't want that life. (laughs) Now, I don't love everything about my life and myself right now, but by contrast to the life I used to live and the person that I know I used to be, know myself to have been, this has been very liberating. And part of what it's allowed me to do is to become more aware of when I'm thinking and making these judgments. So you say how to be patient enough with myself to slow down. Again, I think what's very often the case is in the question, we present our own answer. And then the question is, what does that look like? What does it mean to you to be patient? What does it mean to you to slow down? And you would give some answer to that. And I might give a different answer to that. 
I might want a different thing. So there's all kinds of things that come up from this question, but what's useful because ultimately you have your own truth inside you is asking yourself that question after you've established whether this is really an outcome that you want. And if it is figuring out what does that look like? And then I think the final part of this is then making a commitment. What is the commitment behind that? What, what is the commitment to slowing down, to being patient? Because if this is the kind of thing that is a, what I would call just one of our infinite, you know, probably infinite unbridled desires, there's a lot of things I want. If I pursued all of them, I would be in jail or dead. (laughs) So there's some level of judgment and discretion of what it is you want and then making a commitment behind it and then honoring that commitment, living with integrity. So there's so much in each of these questions. And Juliana, I hope that these have been useful, these answers. But the final thing that I'll say, you know, there's a guy that I heard speak once, a guy named Stephen Prothero. He teaches, I believe he teaches religious studies somewhere back east, at, I think at Boston. And he shared some, he shared so many things that I just thought were so fascinating. But one of the things he shared, and I'm reminded of it now, is he said, you know, many people think of religions as answer banks. Like they have the answer to these questions. Where, where did we come from? Why are we here? How should we live while we're here? What's going to happen after I die? You know, this kind of thing. And sure enough, there are answers to those questions in religions. But what seems to invariably be the case is that every answer spawns at least one more question, if not multiple questions. So at some point, again, I think there's value in just silencing the questions and being with whatever is and whatever's not. So again, I suspect if we were together, and this is true of probably just about any one of my clients or friends when we're having a conversation. If, if I'm asked a question, the first thing as a coach that I look at is I actually think there's a limited usefulness in me answering this question because you have your own answer inside you for you. Your answer is probably superior to mine. Second is any answer I would give is likely to simply spawn more questions. And yes, we learn through inquiry and discovery and that kind of thing. But at the same time, when you realize that the response to a question merely leaves you in the same basic situation of having questions, I think wondering why you're even answering the questions, which is a form of a question, just being in that space of inquiry without a sense of needing to know the answer, without a sense of deficiency or inadequacy or incompleteness, and instead perhaps choosing to believe and then experience yourself in some real way as the perfect being you are with that thank you for the opportunity to answer those questions man this was a different this was a bit of a different style down wasn't it because this is me riffing on the answer to like five multi-part questions i like it though i i love questions i think that they they really spur the mind. For one, it spurs you in, in the question you're going to give. And then any of us who are listening, we also think, how would I answer that? How would I do that? Do I agree? Do I disagree? It, it just forces a lot of uh, thought going on in our mind. So I'm a great fan of questions. Yeah, me too. And I know I didn't ask you this before I launched into answering these questions, but 
is there anything along the way that stood out that you were like, oh, that's really that's really wise, or that's a pile of shit, or anything like that? I uh, well, as you were asking them, I mean, these are questions that I'm always trying to figure out. In the beginning, where you're asking, she was asking if we let's see. The question was, do you turn? Was it give something about replacing? Up? Yeah, yeah. If you're giving something up, do you need to bring something else into your life? And that's one I'm constantly thinking of. It's like, oh, if I give up this, how am I going to replace that? And a lot of times it feels like a loss when it shouldn't be a loss. And then when you were talking about uh, meditation, as you were speaking Mm -hmm. about that, that's one that I've never gotten into, but I see it in other people that, like, for instance, you, I mean, eight years every day, that's a long time to be doing something. There's definitely some benefit in there. And so it, it, I think, well, what would that add in my life? How would that add? So I do enjoy listening to the questions, and they do pause me and, and make me think, what am I – well, you try to apply it in your life. But yeah. I, I, I like them. I like them. She's cool. got some great questions. Yeah. Well, the, the last thing I would do to wrap this one up then is – As I reread that question number one, if you remove a habit or belief, do you have to replace that habit or belief with something else? You know, again, I address that part about you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. As far as I can tell, you're not compelled. And as long as we believe we must, we will not experience the freedom that's available to us as the person who has the, the ability to make the, you know, decisions in our life. But the thing that I didn't answer on that one that I do want that I do want to address is this, just this one about replacing habits. You know, can you just quit a habit cold? Yes, people have done it. Is it difficult? Often many people experience it as difficult. Anyone who's ever tried smoking has experienced that. Mark Twain has that great saying, I know I can quit smoking. I've done it a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> so so there's that. But what what I think is maybe useful and again with somebody who's a coach or who has who has a, just a natural I mean, you can do this on your own, but it can be helpful with an, with another person is to really try to what I would maybe say, get underneath the habit and say, what is this habit in service to? Not just why do I have it? Because many people could go, well, I'm morally weak or I'm fundamentally flawed or I love the one that that Marshall, you know, my mentor Marshall will say congenital defect. <laughs> Some people will say, well, I've got a congenital defect. I have the habit of interrupting people. And of course, no one has that as a congenital defect. It's, it is a choice. Now, it, it's become a habit, but for people, many people, things like that become a choice. But if you start to go, what is underneath that? What is that about? And, and when you start to understand what is a behavior about, what is a pattern of action really about is, and it could be so many different things. What I found useful is Tony Robbins. He talks about the six human needs and other people have come up with models like this. But I think Tony's is pretty insightful where he talks about significance, certainty, variety, love and connection, growth or contribution. That every one of our behaviors, Tony asserts, is driven by one or more of these needs. And if you look at what is a need, now I tried this in my own life, I used to smoke, and I would say, well, what is that about? And You know, Tony incidentally will say, if anything meets three or more, it's likely to become an addiction. And, you know, smoking met at least three of those for me. It was certainty. 
if I lit up a cigarette and I took a, you know, I took a, a, the first puff, I'd, I'd start to feel better in way. Now that's a, for me, a tricky one because I'd also feel like crap physically and for emotional reasons of, I know this isn't good for me and so forth, but it did provide some certainty. It provided often that love and connection because there, you know, if you smoke, you can make friends with anybody. It's hey, may I bum a light or isn't it cold? Like it's easy. You have something in common where it's easier to have that social connection. And often where I think people struggle in quitting smoking is that it's the social thing. You know, after you finish a meal or when you get off an airplane, if you're with somebody else who's a smoker, you just know, boom, it's time to smoke. But at any rate, for me, it met that criteria as well. Uh, What else? Not growth, not contribution. It certainly didn't meet those significance. No, I didn't feel significant when I smoked. Although for some people they might, if this is an act of rebellion and I get, you know, to tell my parents, you know, I get to give them the finger or something in some way that could be a motive for somebody smoking. And if you start to, for any behavioral pattern, you know, variety, that was a need, that was a need it would meet. I would be working, I'd be, you know, in a long writing stretch or something. And it was like, it, it would meet the needs of both certainty and uncertainty or variety. So for me, it met at least those three needs. And then what I could look at is, is I could say, well, what other behaviors could meet those needs? And for me, it, it did start to look like things like going for a walk. Well, that was variety. You know, that was certainty. I would get some fresh air or I could see things outside my home or my office or whatever. Loving connection was available if I made it available, you know, actively initiating contact with another person and so forth. So this is all maybe a long way of saying, if you want to replace a, a habit looking at what needs is it meeting and what other ha- what other habits or actions could meet those same needs and then setting up your environment to help you to help you do that so uh, just one thing to add on that is i interact with a lot of people in addiction whether it be alcohol or opiates or meth things like that and inevitably, when you when you talk with them and dig into it deeper, it's rarely just like I took this substance and I was hooked. It's yeah. more there was a trauma in their life early on. And most of these, a lot of these people started when they're 10 or 12 years old, a lot of not good things going on there. And so those are great questions is to look, why is this here? It's not just like I took this and it really fed this. Usually it's I took this to block out all these things. Or you talk about the friends, you talk about the interaction. So, um, yeah, that's definitely one where you, yes, everyone agrees, hey, this would be a great thing to stop. But the question of why are you doing it in the first place is a fantastic place to start. Yeah. Well, I love to something I've heard Joe Polish, you know, the marketing guru say the question with addiction is not why the addiction it's why the pain so spot on yeah which is an interesting one and and again there we can go into the past and be in a regression and a set of explanations and you know this kind of thing and it's not to diminish that but again if we're looking forward and we're saying well what kind of person do i want to be if you don't want to be a healthy person per se you know depending on how you define health and that kind of thing then maybe it doesn't matter that you quit your addiction if you don't but anyway i'm on a bit of a tangent so i'm gonna gonna cut that one off and say okay so and i didn't even talk about magic the gathering which for me met all six needs which is why (laughs) i didn't know this (laughs) oh my goodness that was that for me was a life-destroying addiction for a long time this will be a great future story (laughs) 
Yeah. So, okay. Well, then I will just conclude that with thanking you, Juliana, for sharing with me those questions, giving me Well, first of all, thank you, Juliana, for being a friend and also a participant in the Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching Program. Exploring the answers to questions like this, both in the program and outside it, just in conversations we have or in this podcast is, for me, part of what makes life meaningful. And I'm really grateful to you for that. And for everyone listening, I'm grateful to you for tuning in and I would also be grateful to you if you haven't already, if you will subscribe to this podcast, if you would be willing to rate it, if you'd be willing to share it. And I invite you to head over to goodliving.com and join my email list where every week I send an inspirational email that also contains, I believe, some things that are interesting and useful, things that if you're into coaching or even if you could use more coaching skills in your life will help you be more effective will help you live a good life, help you be a great coach, help you earn recognition and money. If you have something you're building that you want to share with other people, maybe a business or a product or some kind of creative work, that some of the ideas in those weekly emails can help you do that as well. The other thing I didn't say at the beginning of this podcast is that really the School for Good Living is a way for me to explore the answer to the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? So, This has, I believe, has given me the opportunity to do that today, and I'm grateful to you again, Juliana. Uh, Dallin, I'm grateful to you for making this, this happen, and I'm grateful to everybody for listening. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.